Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen with Rebecca Minkoff. All right, so back to our bonus EPs. Um, this panel from our conference is with Sutian Dong, Katya Beecham, Jennifer Fleiss, Colleen McKeegan, who moderated She's from Marie Claire. Sutian started Female Founders Fund, Katya started Birchbox, and Jennifer Fleiss is the co founder of Rent the Runway and now Jet Black. So, again, disruptors, badasses, take a listen. You won't regret it. Okay. Hello, everybody. Um, More from the venture side of things. It sounds like you had an amazing conversation less than an hour ago on on loans and all of that. But um, I'm really excited to be joined by Sutian Jenny and Katya because each of them have such a different perspective an experience with fundraising on both sides, which is great. So let's just kick things off with each of you giving a brief bio so everybody in the room has a sense of your background and the journey that you've had to where you are right now. Katya, why don't you start? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Katya. I'm from El Paso, Texas. I studied an, a Vassar undergrad, liberal arts. So I was one of like two people that then went to business school. Um, in between that, I did commercial real estate investment banking. And I went to business school and started Birchbox, which is a company where when we started it, we had a very simple insight. We thought that it was too hard to buy beauty and that basically nobody was really buying it on the internet. And the reason we say it was hard is just there was so many choices and we, my co-founder and I, we felt we're smart. And we were like, but we still don't know what a, the hell a serum is and when do you use it. Um, and the internet was just crazily underpenetrated in selling beauty. So we thought, how can we figure out how to make it enjoyable to discover and give the internet a chance to sell you beauty? And that's how we came up with the concept of Birchbox that allowed you to have fewer choices and touch them. Um, and we've raised over $100 million to date. Um, we operate in six countries. Um, we have millions of subscribers and customers, but um, it has not been simple. And I want to make it easier for all of you. Thank you for having me here. And it's great to see all of you. I am Jenny Fleiss, co-founder of Rent the Runway and recently co-founder and CEO of Jet Black. Um, Rent the Runway. Who, who here uses Rent the Runway? I just say that to make myself <laughs> Um So that has been a 10-year journey. I'm, I'm still involved in on the board, um, evolving on-demand dress rentals into what is now a daily behavior of renting fashion. And 10 years ago when we started, I think everyone in the industry thought we were crazy. Certainly the designer brands that we worked with, it took like 10 pitches per brand. And now we have hundreds of brands coming to us and we're able to offer a solution where you can just constantly look your best in a way that's price effective and also time effective because realistically like it takes us so much of our lives in our day to figure out you know what to wear and how to look great um similarly I drew on kind of my own consumer needs now as a busy mom I have three kids at at home um and created Jet Black which is a personal shopping service over text message you can text whatever you want whether it's laundry detergent a birthday gift designer handbag and we will get it to you typically within a day um we do delivery in bags, not boxes. 
prices. We gift wrapping, easy returns. We're trying to take away all the pain points of shopping and add delight back into e-commerce shopping, which I think has been kind of stripped out of it gradually over the years. And it's the first business within an incubator that I helped evolve in um, Walmart. So Fortune One Company, thinking of how do we drive technical innovation and create kind of startup vibe and pace within such a, a big business. So it's been fun to kind of see how that all works as an intrapreneur now. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, my name is Su Tian Dong, and I'm a partner at Female Founders Fund. Uh, at Female Founders Fund, we are an early stage internet and software investor. The difference between Female Founders Fund and most other funds in the ecosystem is we, as the name suggests, invest in female founders exclusively. And we were founded in 2014 with this point of view about the world, uh, actually founded after Rent the Runway and Birchbox, uh, with this point of view about the world that the world is changing, and when you think about the face of entrepreneurship 10, 20, 30 years from now, it's going to look really different than what it does today, and what it does today, it looks really different than what it did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And as female GPs, as female fund investors, we saw an opportunity to invest in female founders because we have this strong belief that people who see the world and see how it's going to change for the future are going to be the people who create the products and services and platforms for the future. And we believe a big portion of those people are women. And so we saw an opportunity to invest in those women and provide not just capital, but also the services, the platform, the network, and hopefully the other intangibles that help take a company from zero to one and then to scale. Uh, before Female Founders Fund, I was an investor for a number of years at uh, a shop in New York called First Mark Capital. And this is where I, from the investor's point of view, saw this gap in the market that many amazing women were coming and trying to raise capital and for any number of reasons were having trouble doing so, especially at the early stages when you're not pitching and up into the right story yet, but you're pitching yourself, right? And your idea and your ability to execute and really manifest this vision that you have for the world. And, uh, and so fast forward from, oh gosh, when I started out at First Mark in 09 to 2019, it's been really, really incredible to see how the ecosystem has shifted because I tell you 10 years ago, there would be like five women in this room. And to see all the people here today, it's really incredible. So Katya and Jenny, you guys really helped build the, the, thriving, um, the thriving ecosystem and, and just group and community of female founders in New York. But when you were first fundraising, fresh out of business school for both of you guys, it was, as Sutian just mentioned, it was a completely different environment. So what were your earliest conversations with investors like? How many no's did you get? And how did you get across that first big hurdle? You're setting us up. <laughs> <laughs> like 100% no's, just to be clear. I mean, for us, like it was, it was really, really difficult. We went from um, starting the company and seeing that there was just this insane consumer demand and feeling, wow, like this is going to work when everybody had told us nobody would ever pay for a sample. That was like the big feedback we got. Every man, every woman, people said, I will not pay for a sample. And we were just like, but we will. I mean, it doesn't seem that crazy for to pay to have a better experience, a slight, a little bit. Um, and we launched, consumers loved it. We wrote a business plan. We got second place in the business plan competition at Harvard. And we were just like, totally, this is gonna work, right? This is happening, now we'll go get money, as one does. Um, and <laughs> we went to go get money and everybody was basically like, uh, my wife doesn't wear makeup. 
does this really need a box? We were just like, what do you, wait, what? Like, does this need sampling? Is this just an e-commerce company? We were like, no, 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 no. I mean, everybody basically told us no, but not, the actual frustrating thing is that everybody also was like, maybe go do some more work and think about it more and come back to us. And so everybody was kind of giving us homework assignments, but nobody was actually stepping up to the plate, which was definitely partially our fault and partially a system, like a systematic issue around being able to relate to the consumer. And it's normal, right? I mean, we were talking to people who really couldn't relate to the problem we were trying to describe and that made it inherently hard. And I just started this by saying that everyone said no. So you could understand that that did not stop us. I mean, we, I'm sure had 100 no's and it felt, I mean, maybe they didn't say no, but they didn't give us money. Yeah, we had a lot of no's as well. Um, if you think about it, the the venture landscape, if you're pitching to venture capitalists, is mostly men, and it's mostly men in their 50s and 60s. And so probably for both of our concepts, it was, you know, they weren't a user of Rent the Runway or Birchbox, and so then they're thinking, you know, do I ask my wife? Well, typically VCs are like billionaires, so their wives were not needing to rent dresses. Then yeah. maybe or they... Or sample things. Or needing samples, Right. Also, uh, editors don't need those things. Like similarly, right? When you're like talking to a beauty editor, they're like, "Well, why would I have? Why would I have the miniature when I could, <laughs> when I could just call the company and have the big one?" I was like, "Because not everybody now, so. is a beauty editor." But no, I remember people calling assistants into the room and yes, being like, they would, they would like the push next. a box in front of them and be like, "Would you yeah. pay ten dollars for this?" And then, like, assistants are the next category they would be bringing assistants in. And there were so many times where it was described, oh, that's really cute what you're doing. Honestly, like, sometimes that still happens from investors, right? As opposed to it being, like, this serious, like, hundreds of billion dollar industry that we're disrupting and changing and there's a real need here. And what we found ultimately worked really well with investors um, and, and the Birchbox team has done this as well is kind of showing rather than telling. So once we realized that men really couldn't grasp the emotional connection that women have with fashion, we're like, it's not about the cost or the convenience or why we are crazy enough to need hundreds of items in our closet on a regular basis. It's about this like emotional feeling where you feel like you can take on the world when you put on something great. And I think, you know, makeup has a similar ability and feel. And so something that we both did was like started getting our concept out there with consumers like as soon as possible. So when I was at HBS, Jen and I, like we would go across the river to Harvard. We would do pop-up shops where we would just like set up shop and rent dresses. And we were learning a ton of things. But the biggest takeaway was video testimonial and of the customer interactions of just seeing women transformed when they put on a great outfit. And we started every investor meeting with those videos, um, like once we realized that was our unlock. And so I advise female entrepreneurs um, to, to try to do something similar, of like how do you just show rather than tell from the get-go, like start that way. Um, and I remember hearing from you and Haley how you were also like you were testing out of your dorm rooms this concept so you could actually show with data and customer testimonials. Yeah. I mean, I think for any entrepreneur, men and women, the, there's a few things that I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and that I try to explain. Like so many people get stuck in the idea of making the business plan and never start because you're very caught up in this idea that you cannot realize the vision. You have a big vision. And just to be clear, like neither of our vision was to like carry boxes to like the mail post office ourselves, like glue everything down, you know, print things on our home computer, like design a logo. None of that was our vision, right? But we had to start somewhere to understand 
determined whether there was a customer. And that is, you know, what Jenny's getting at is what you have to go to investors with when you're ready to raise institutional capital is proof that you've identified a problem that there's a customer problem, that there's a customer for that problem, and then ultimately you have to sell that it's a big problem, right? But having actually started it is honestly a really big part of raising capital because so many people have ideas and so few people transition from the PowerPoint and Excel to working. And part of what they're trying to you know, understand is are you somebody that can operationalize an idea? Because frankly, the idea does not matter nearly as much as the timing of the idea and your ability to operationalize the idea. So did you, do you have a sense of like, is this the right time for your idea? And are you somebody that has started to execute on it? That's what matters and that's what they want to understand from you. So with that in mind, Sutiang, you've talked about this before, where a lot of what you're selling is bigger than your business. You're selling yourself and one of your biggest goals when you're first meeting with investors is to get that second meeting. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about what you look for in founders and what's been successful to get you on board to invest. Yeah, absolutely. So when we invest, we invest at the earliest stages of a company's life. Uh, sometimes we work closely with founders to even stand up the company. Most of the time we invest at a stage where there is something that we can see, touch and feel. So to Kasha's point, not just a PowerPoint, but a little bit more than that. But what we invest in ultimately are people you have to think about these investor relationships as very long-term seven to 10-year relationships. They're marriages, right? You're getting married to each and every one of those funds or people who give you money. And if you take that view, it has to be really important that there's a good fit, there's a good working relationship, and there's alignment on where you want to build the business to. And so for us as investors, when we evaluate companies at the stage at which we're investing, we're actually evaluating people. And when you evaluate people, it's a lot of soft, qualitative evaluation than quantitative stuff, right? Because there's not metrics, right? There's not a ton of numbers to point at and say, oh, wow, this business is growing 30% month over month. So what we're looking at are, are uh, and we're, we're trying to answer our questions like, oh, does this person know how to sell, right? Can they convince us of their idea? And does that mean that they can convince people to join the company when it's a big risk to take for future employees to take professionally? Can they convince other companies to partner with them? Uh, we look for characteristics like grit, right? Can this person persevere? We look for characteristics like uh, uh, are you open to being coached, right? Are you open to feedback? And when we, we think about these, what we're also looking for is what is that special the special sauce, right? The special piece, the superpower that that entrepreneur has. As an individual, as an entrepreneur, you're never going to be amazing at everything, right? But what we are trying to understand is, okay, well, for the business that you're trying to build, what ultimately are the very important drivers that will have this business grow? And do we think that you are the person who can uh, who can pull those levers the best, right? Are you amazing at sales? Are you really great at recruiting? Are you incredibly talented product person? And when we understand that, we also have a view into understanding, well, who else is on your team? Do you have a sense of who to hire? And how do we think about our fund complementing your skill set and us really having a partnership to grow the firm? So let's get a little bit technical. 
um, after you have the ability as an entrepreneur to show and not just tell, um, and you have a track record that you can put in front of investors, oftentimes you're now talking about your business plan, about your slides, your pitch deck, all of that. What should those in the audience who are at that stage and are putting together a pitch deck, what should be in it? So I'm going to point to um, my now co-founder, Mark Laurie, who had started diapers, and then Jed, he's now the CEO of US Walmart e-commerce. Um, he wrote a great LinkedIn post, and he captures kind of like 13 slides that he thinks you should have, and it shouldn't be more than 13, and they should be much more visual and high level than they should like in the weeds. Um, and it's, you know, it's the typical market sizing. What is your business model? Where do you fit in with the kind of current uh, timing and ecosystem? Team is a really important aspect of that. Um, competitive landscape. But I think like less is more. Um, and I, I think another mistake people make sometimes is sending out their pitch deck to investors. Um, I think the best is that if you have a short blurb or Jen and I had like a one pager that summarized high level that we would send out or we had our lawyer off and send it to venture firms. But like save that deck for when like you're out there pitching it because you're going to make those slides come to life and no one wants to see just like a ton of content dropped into slides. I'll also add, Colleen, you mentioned this earlier. Um, the goal of every single meeting is not to get a check like slid across the table, right? The goal of every single meeting is to get to the next meeting, right? And so your deck should be a visual support for your storytelling of what you're building and why this matters and why the time is now. And so when you think about it in that way, uh, and especially at the early stages, the things that you want to emphasize are the things that are within your control, right? So you can emphasize your understanding of the market by talking about market size, the opportunity set, why the time is now. Uh, the thing within your control is to talk a lot about yourself, right, and your team, and why you guys are the people or you ladies are the people to to do this thing, right? Uh, and and that's, that's something that, and not to overgeneralize, I find that entrepreneurs often have a hard time doing like oh I went to these really great schools and had these really good jobs and I'm just going to gloss over it because they can read it and so one of a really good practice um, if you have a co-founder is to have your co-founder pitch you for you and that's oftentimes an eye-opening exercise because you're like oh wow I'm awesome right I can do this uh, and it's it gives you, I think, a different perspective, right, on how you should be talking about yourself because ultimately people are investing in you. And so if you're selling the product, you're selling yourself, what's the best sales and marketing strategy for that? And Sutian, would you agree that often deals are won or lost even before someone walks into the room. So I do investing and advising, and I often feel like the way someone got to me, who referred them, I've off, I often do back channels before I'll even spend time in a meeting. That's really, like, already sets my mind frame in a place where I have a good sense of who this person is and whether I'm going to invest or not. And then I think also, like, the way you get to a firm, can you, like, position yourself via a trusted referral? We did it through a lawyer who had great uh, relationships. I'll now help other women um, if I believe in the concept and kind of vouch for them and, and make an introduction. Um, who you're meeting with also really matters. So I think to do research of like, is this someone within the firm who has pull and is going to let you set yourself up for success? I think early days of Rent the Runway, if there were specific investments I think we did not get because we didn't have the right person in the room who had enough familiarity with our industry, who had done enough deals, who had maybe enough respect within the firm. Yeah, 100%. For us, so for example, if... Uh, 
if one of our founders or existing portfolio founders sends us uh, a deal, one of their friends, somebody they used to work with, we almost always take that meeting because these are the people that we respect and we think are going to do amazing things. And so their, uh, their, their quote unquote seal of approval means a lot to us. Uh, venture capitalists, we see somewhere around 3,000 deals a year, right? We invest in six to eight. So when you think about that top of funnel and how it narrows down, it's a very, very slim conversion rate. That means that when you think about signal to noise, right, and how do you become or how do you get that signal and get in front of people, uh, having that warm introduction and having somebody use their social capital to introduce you to the right person is really meaningful for VCs. That's great. So in a few minutes, we're going to open it up to questions from you all. Um, before we get there, Katya, I want to talk to you a bit about debt. So we were talking about this backstage, and it's just it's an aspect of these conversations that's often not talked about, not touched upon. Um, why... Do you feel it's so important for entrepreneurs to better understand debt and to take debt on? Yeah, I was excited to hear you just had this conversation, um, like Jenny said, a couple hours ago, because I think one thing that you can get really caught up in as an entrepreneur is this idea that raising money is the goal. Um, and it's almost like Fed by a culture of like, you know, I have an idea, then I go get like venture capital, and that's a big part of the goal. And Actually, I think there is probably a lot of great ideas that don't need that kind of initial capital and maybe like ever capital, um, which is interesting because there are trade-offs, right? Debt comes with kind of a cash implication because you pay interest, but you can retain ownership of the company. And one of the biggest decisions that you should be thinking about if you do have an idea or if you're thinking about starting a company is what's the appropriate way to finance that company um, based on what I think the big opportunity is. And so, so some venture capitalists, like most venture capitalists are looking for ideas, they're trying to take big bets, right? So this has to be something that is fundamentally changing the market and has billions of dollars. B, most venture capitalists think that way. Some are structured now to think about smaller bets, um, but they're still thinking about hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And there are amazing businesses to be made that are millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars where you don't need to you know, go the same approach. And I learned a lot, obviously, bringing debt into Birchbox later on as we had assets and inventory and funding, working capital with debt. And I was like, wow, why didn't we do this sooner? Why did no one, like, I mean, my fault too, like, why didn't I understand how to match the funding with the profile of risk? And that's how to think about it, right? Like, if you can pay for some of your things um, that are less risky around like we have very predictable turns of inventory with low interest rate debt that is extremely efficient versus raising capital. And my husband's an entrepreneur too and built it completely differently, bootstrapped, and then eventually had enough, like a little bit, not a ton of revenue, but enough revenue to just go to a bank and get normal debt. And then every year they offer him so much more for no interest. And I'm just like, this is amazing. So they don't own any of your company. They're not on your board. They're just like, this is so different. Um, and I think there's you know, a place for both. But I feel like I didn't understand that early on. And it's just something where now that I advise other companies, my first question to them is, if you only need $10,000, why aren't you looking at like a credit card first, you know, and then talking to a banker and, you know, like there are ways of getting off the ground. Um, and I don't, I think 
we can use excuses around like, I can't start because, I can't start because I haven't gotten the financing, I can't start because, and trying to find, again, it's like actually what people are looking for, but people who can problem solve this and are like, oh, well, I didn't get this, so I like figured out how to launch this like miniature version of the glimmer of the idea with this like capital I could get access to via credit card or something is such a good sign, even if you do have a really big idea that is venture kind of appropriate. That's great. And Jenny, in your new role, or now not not very new, but um, at Jet Black, you are having to sell ideas that require investment internally, which is a whole different type of fundraising approach, obviously. Um, and I would assume that there are some women here who maybe their company is a side hustle right now or they're entrepreneurial within their company. So what's different about those conversations and what have you found to be really successful with within a more bureaucratic company like Walmart when you're the startup? What makes you think Walmart's bureaucratic? Um, so I was definitely fooling myself when I started this business and I thought, oh, wow, well, normally you have to spend about half of your time as a founder fundraising. That piece is, like, done. I'm going to have so much time to just, like, dive into the consumer problem and, like, 50% of my work is going to be, like, off my plate. That is not true. I think you were, like, always selling, always fundraising. And so it is, like, building internal credibility and kind of like political capital, if you will. Um, I think within a big company, especially Walmart, like even if we were to become a like a couple hundred million dollar business, even a billion dollar business, that's like a drop in the bucket for Walmart. So I think you need to, yes, think of like the top line revenue growth, but I think even more valuable is what strategic assets, like what technical assets can you potentially help this company advance itself and apply across the organization. Um, and it's actually been a new sort of challenge in balancing both of those two things because typically as an entrepreneur, you're like grow, 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 top line, top line, top line, maybe a little consideration of like bottom line unit economics. And for us, like there's this constant weight of like how, you know, let's, should we build things in a more robust way? Should we build it more flexibly, even though it's going to take us longer and be more expensive so that it could be leveraged across the broader organization. Um, so that's been an interesting shift. And I think it's like, in some ways, though, healthy for everyone um, to think about what is the eventual exit and like how might that shape not just your top line growth, but other assets that you put into place as you're building out your business. That's great. And Sutian, not only are you investing in companies, but obviously your fund also requires investment to do that. So what has been the greatest lesson that you've learned um, or the greatest insight that you've learned fundraising for your fund? So if you take a step back and squint a little bit, the fundraising process for a fund is basically exactly the same as a fundraising process for a, uh, a company. Like you're talking to a lot of people who are also generally white men in their 50s and 60s who are like, that's really cute what you're doing. Like, tell me, does this actually make money? Or questions like, so are there enough female founders to fund? Or, you know, like we, we get questions like this all the time. And I'd actually really like to think that these are not um, uh, uh, mean-spirited, right? But they're just very obtuse because people don't understand the market. And so a really big lesson that we learned when we went out to fundraise is to 
qualify the leads, right? When you think about fundraising, I would think about it as a very long enterprise sales process, right? You have leads at the top, those leads qualify into qualified opportunities, and you take those opportunities down through a sales process until you close them. Uh, When we think about lead qualification, we think about, okay, well, who's going to be sitting on the other side of the table? Does this fund or endowment or foundation have a uh, a interest in investing in uh, venture capital as an asset class? Do they invest in funds under $100 million? Do they invest in emerging managers? These are all questions that we try to figure out before the meeting or ask them in the first meeting so we can understand, are you somebody we should be spending a lot of time with or are you somebody we shouldn't be spending as much time with? Because one of the other things to recognize is that when you talk to investors of, of any stripe, uh, a lot of them like to learn, right? And if you're doing something interesting, they'll want to spend time with you and learn about the business. But that doesn't always necessarily mean that they're ever interested in investing in the business. So it's really important for us to delineate between those two things and decide these are people we think are high probability and we're going to invest in those relationships versus these are people and they're great and nice and all of that, but they're probably not going to be LPs in our fund. And so we're not going to spend as much time there. Uh, so now we'd love to open it up to you all, if any, right in the back. So what is the role of crowdfunding and tell us your thoughts on If I were starting a consumer-based company today, I would definitely think about starting there. Um, it didn't exist when we launched, so we didn't have the same opportunity, but I have asked my team on countless occasions, like, could we crowdfund, like, pursuing something internally? Um, And again, it's a matter of like, it's this retraining of the mind of like spending effort to go do this thing. But if I were starting a consumer-based product company today, I would really consider it as a tool. It's gotten crowded like everything else. So I don't think it's that straightforward, just like nothing is. But it seems very useful way to validate an idea. I think it's a great, it's uh, with all these funding sources, it's not a... um, uh, in if or, right? It's often an if and. So you can raise venture capital, but also crowdfund and also uh, take on debt, for example. For us, for our portfolio companies, we always talk about crowdfunding as a really good way to get consumer reach and to get consumer buy-in. So on, if you are starting a consumer business, it's a great way to get people excited about what you're building before you actually launch, right? And to really validate an idea. And so if you uh, crowdfund before you raise any sort of capital, for example, you can point to that as a, as a traction point and say, hey, look, 2,000 people have already pre-bought the product that I'm going to sell. That shows that there's some product market fit there. I think something else is consumers really love feeling a part of the journey. Um, I think that creates a lot of like stickiness, community, and buy-in. We saw that very organically at Rent the Runway where like everyone was so proud. I was, you know, client number three. 30 or whatever, where like everyone, I was one of the first users and I still hear these stories of like, I started using you when you first launched or I was on the earliest wait list. And that I think has just felt like such loyal loyalty and stickiness. Um, we thought about leveraging that a lot at Jet Black where, you know, going back to the well and constantly engaging your uh, customers to get their feedback and just making them feel a part of the process. It also gives you like the forgiveness that you need sometimes when you're first starting because there are mistakes that inevitably happen. And I think treating them as the opportunity to learn and making your customer a part of that is really powerful. Um, yeah, how do you, like, when you're in these investor meetings, how do you establish a sense of urgency and lead to a close? Because I'm in that situation right now, and it's so frustrating because you're like, how many times do I have to 
explain the same thing? Or like, how do I initiate the close faster or more efficiently? Yeah, yeah that's, uh, so the fastest way to establish urgency is to get somebody to get you a term sheet and put one down on the table. That being said, that there's a lot of stuff that comes before that, right? And so the question is, well, what do I do to make people move faster if I don't have a term sheet or something that has real urgency attached to it and an expiration date? Uh, this is, um, I think this is a skill that you develop more as you go through more fundraising processes. Uh, but it is, um, the skill is to create um, a timeline that you set everyone to, right? Hey, we're out fundraising right now. Uh, we are in to keep that timeline as tight as possible, right? Today is March 6th. We are going to close by the end of the month, right? We have other people. I'm at partner meetings right now, right? And so if you're not, you know, if you need to get to a partner meeting, you need to do that in the next week, right? And so you want to move people along in the same tranche, right? Uh, in, in, in the same cohort, or else people are going to take their time. If they ask you, hey, when do you think you're going to close? You're like, well, as soon as possible, but I guess we have until June. Somebody's going to say, oh, that's cool. I can wait until May to think about this. If there's any way you can start making money um, sooner, I that was what worked for us. Like we got a lot of no's until we stopped needing the capital as desperately. Um, once we had launched and people were buying it, and we could kind of like barely self-fund it, but we could self-fund it. That's, I mean, I joke with everybody, but we all know it, right? Once you don't need it, there it is. So um, that is the biggest point of leverage. I, I tell my team all the time, I'm a big believer that the biggest gift I can give my team is helping you learn how to sell and understanding who has leverage and then how to create leverage is just always what you're doing in life and your career is you go into these meetings and you go with, um, you meet an investor and you really feel like they have the leverage that is killing the deal right there. You have to psychologically see how like you are going to get this person a promotion. You're going to get their fund a great return. Like you have to go in feeling like you have leverage and then creating leverage is like, I don't need it as desperately because I am, you know, in an ideal scenario, I know we were lucky, like a little bit of money is coming out of this. I can keep going. You know, so that's, I know it's difficult, but. Hi, I had a follow-up question for you, Patricia. When you're talking about making a little bit of money at this very early days, you're like, okay, got a little bite, like this is exciting, we're getting somewhere. What was the turning point for you that said, okay, now we have a little bit, now let's go raise money. This is enough to, you know, start those conversations. How did you know? It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't quite that way. So for us, you know, invested our life savings to my life savings to launch the business, but it was very little. And then in the first two months made it back. And I was like, cool, this could be a thing. Um, and then we were trying to fundraise and failing, like I said, and we were able to get a loan from friends and family. It was really a loan launch. And then we started making money from customers and then term sheets came in. It wasn't like we were gaming the system. We were just trying to get some customers and, and we were getting customers at a decent clip is what I'd say. So it was the one big mistake that we made was that when we went out to fundraise, it was in between the test and the launch and we had no momentum. And what we found is once we launched and there was like even a little bit of momentum that you could extrapolate into, we just got the term sheets and then we had a lot of term sheets and a competitive deal and we could negotiate. But it was like, Beta, so successful, let's fundraise to get to launch, couldn't, launched, and then we're able to fundraise. But it was, that's just what happened to us. Okay, and back. Hi, I just, um, I have a question about the 
So from a VC perspective, investing in product businesses relative to investing in software has is fairly recent, right? So making shit is hard, right? And so when you're making stuff that involves like third parties and factories and things like the production cycle, inventory, the production cycle, um, yes, it's hard, right? And so conversely, if you make stuff and, and push it out on the internet, it's much easier to scale that than it is when you have tangible physical products you see, touch, and feel. Uh, when it comes to, you know, from, uh, again, the VC perspective, when it comes to raising money and um, and gathering interest for, for a content or community business, I think that it really depends on what you're building, right? Community as a, uh, uh, we'll call it, sorry. Yeah, community as a currency or community as a, an area to invest in is only becoming more interesting to people and, and more interesting to venture capitalists. And and you see companies even like uh, a Glossier, which started as a product company, going into more of building like a, a beauty community and a, uh, an influencer community there. Um, but the the interest that you're getting will depend on what you're building and ultimately how you see that platform or product monetizing. Uh, it it depends, right? If you're if you have a content site that makes money from uh, display ads right now and you have no um, no desire or interest to change that in the future, raising money may be hard there because. VCs and, and many investors tend to be less interested in investing in straight content at this point. Uh, but if you have something that's differentiated in the ecosystem, I think that's the important thing, that you're developing something different, right, and that you can maintain some competitive advantage over time. That's great. Well, Sutian, Jenny, Katia, thank you so much for all of your expertise. And hopefully we'll see one of you guys up here in a year or two, and you'll be the ones that we're asking questions to. Thank you so much. I think my favorite speaker was Katja from Birchbox because, so we talk a lot about if we're going to raise money, we're both self-funded and have day jobs. Uh, and she talked about how to consider debt as an option, which I hadn't thought about before. My name is Hannah. The company is called Pip Herka and it's Herka for pregnancy and beyond. So I think a few founders talked about getting 60 no's or getting 100 no's. Um, and I haven't had many no's in my life. Like I've had a great career and done well like at school. Or, so for me, it was really great to have that reassurance from people that are incredibly successful to be persistent and understand the feedback and move on. 